with that in mind, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to pick out two verses here. The first one is, is verse 22. And it simply says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And verse 45 says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And the lesson I want to teach this morning, if you are a note taker, the title of this lesson is simply called The Tension Between Two Atoms. The Tension Between Two Atoms. Romans informs us from what we've just read that it is through the offense or disobedience of Adam that sin, death, and condemnation were passed unto all mankind. We may not like that, but that's how it is. When Adam, together with Eve, his wife, sinned, they introduced corruption to humanity. And so, although you and I are not held accountable for Adam's actions, there are some people that hold to that belief that we are uh, accountable for Adam's own actions, although that, I don't believe that's accurate scripturally. The corruption that we inherited produces winner within us, sorry, naturally occurring lusts and desires that are contrary to God. And so those desires produce sinful actions from a very young age. We've often discussed or observed that nobody has to teach children how to lie. Nobody has to teach them how to be greedy. In fact, there are often things that we try to teach them not to be. They're, unfortunately, within the, it doesn't mean our children are horrible little monsters. It just means that we have a corrupt human nature. And from a very young age, that leads us to sinful actions. Those actions we are accountable for. The, act, the sinful actions that we make, we are accountable for. And so, while you may like to debate the exact details of the how and why all that works out, the combination of Adam's actions and my actions make me a guilty sinner in the sight of the Lord. He introduced that corrupt nature to us and that nature produces sinful conduct. And so if we go back far enough, I don't know that it's possible. Some of you may like to look at things like Ancestry.com and some of that stuff, but Adam is the granddaddy of us all. I don't think you'll track it back that far on the internet. If you do, let me know. I'll be very impressed. But Adam is our great, great, by the power of however many, grandfather of everybody that is here. And uh, we obviously don't have all matching physical family traits, but we all have matching sinful natures. Every one of us got one of those from great-granddad Adam. But the contrast of the passage that we read in Romans is that through one man, death came. 
and that through another man, Jesus Christ, life, grace, and righteousness came. The first thing was earned by action, consequences of actions. And the second is offered as a free gift by love and grace. That's what the Scripture says. When we moved into 1 Corinthians, it refers to both men as Adam. Now, we know Jesus' name wasn't Adam, but it's using him as a type or an example. And the Adam that we read about from Genesis is the father of the human race. We've already established that all flesh descends from him. But Jesus, who is the second or the last Adam, is the father of all who have spiritual life, or those that are born again of water and spirit, because as we read in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that he is a quickening or a life-giving spirit. Amen. Everybody with me so far? Amen. So Adam introduced death through sin. Jesus introduced life by defeating death and rising again. Adam's body went into the grave when he died, where it awaits the resurrection at the last day. The body of Jesus also went into the grave, but he rose again and ascended into heaven with a glorified body, with a body that had no, there was no corruption, there was no aging, it was, it was in a glorified state. Exactly what that means, we'll find out when we get there. That's an interesting conversation, but not one that I have the capability of explaining exactly what all of that means. But when we are born again, when you and I are born again, we are ready for heaven. We're ready to go to be with the Lord. And if we die before Jesus returns, just like Adam, these bodies will go into the grave and await resurrection as well. But if we are alive when he returns, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's talking about we won't all, we won't all die, but we shall be changed. He said it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. There's going to be the last trump, and the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. So those that were already in the grave will be resurrected in an incorruptible form. And we, that's those of us that are still alive, shall be changed. There will be a transformation that takes place. Our bodies will change or be transformed or be glorified like the Lord's body was. That's, that's why if you read on in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about mortal putting on immortality and corruptible putting on incorruption. Amen. And so right now, we're in that place, as long as we're all alive and breathing at the moment, we're in that place that is between the now and the not yet, if you like. We're in that middle period where we are still physically in the body of the first Adam, but we are filled with the Spirit of the second Adam. Everybody follow. Naturally in this body and in our nature, we are still in the place of the first Adam, but we are filled with the spirit of the second Adam. And there is, if you have the Holy Ghost, you understand what I'm talking about. There is a tension that exists between the first and second Adam. Tension by the dictionary's definition is a strange state or condition resulting from forces acting in opposition to each other. Something is tight, like a really tightly pulled wire. There are two forces that are pulling on either end, causing the tension to exist in the wire. And there is plenty of scripture that I won't read for the sake of time this morning, but it refers to this tension as being like a battle, a struggle, 
or a war. That's what it talks about. They're not uh, light words. They give us an idea that it's pretty serious. Because the desires, the will, and the thinking, and the actions of these two are in opposition to each other. That's why there's tension. That's why there is opposition forces that are working on us. And so when when we repent of our sins and we respond to the gospel, and we talked about that just recently when we had our our guests with us from Shalom House, what happens is we make a choice to die to the old life or to die to the way that the first Adam was governing our lives and to no longer be controlled by that first Adam. This is not some ghostly figure hanging around. We're talking about the human nature. Don't weird out on me here. We're talking about that human nature that we've inherited that controlled our lives. And what happens is we begin a new life in relationship with the second Adam or with Jesus Christ. That's what happens when you're born again. One life ceases, another life starts. But because we don't literally physically die, that old Adam is still around. Anybody testify to that fact? All right. That old Adam is still around. And so if we want to continue in that new life that we've chosen to take advantage of in Jesus Christ... The choice to die out to the old Adam has to happen on a daily basis. Because that nature is still present, there must be a conscious decision that no to you and yes to you. That has to happen on a regular basis. That's why as children of God, it is so very important that we have a regular relationship with Jesus Christ. It's fantastic to do what in Pentecostal circles we like to call pray through. What that means is that you pray and the Lord refills you with the Holy Ghost and you have that refreshing and that renewing that takes place in your spirit. That's awesome. But doing that from time to time by itself is not enough. There's got to be some kind of consistency. Otherwise, it's like having an amazing meal and then not eating for three weeks. And every once in a while, having an amazing meal, but no food in between. That's not healthy. You're going to enjoy that meal. I promise you, if you don't eat for a couple of weeks, you're going to enjoy that meal. Everything's going to be good that day. Even the Brussels sprouts are going to taste good that day. Some of you that like Brussels sprouts, we'll pray for you afterwards. That's okay. But the point is these periodic connections with the Spirit of God are not a pathway to spiritual health. They're a great experience, like that great meal, but they're not health. Health requires consistency. It requires a regular pattern of daily time with the Lord. And so the strength or the health of the new life is heavily or directly impacted by the continual dying to the old life. I wish that repentance was a one-time thing. I do. I wish that I could just go to the Lord and say, Lord, not living that way anymore, draw a line and, and never see it again. But when I get up in the morning and I look at this face in the mirror, I know that that day there's a battle. That day the tension exists and I have to make a decision, who's God that day? Is it the Lord or is it what I want, the old Adam? Amen. And if you're honest, you have that experience as well. Amen. Scripture makes it clear to us that the new birth or being born again begins new life and that new life begins a process of new living 
and growing. It uses those natural examples that we're familiar with to show us what happens in the spiritual. It tells us that just like there are new babies that are born in the natural world, when you're born again in the spiritual world, there's a need to grow and to mature. We understand that. And some of this, some of you have heard many times. But there are two words that I want to, I guess, keep as the focal point of this lesson this morning that appear in the New Testament that are very similar in meaning and in application that are a part of this process of leaving being an infant and growing up, basically. And those words are perfect and complete. Perfect and complete. And if you were here on Friday night in the ladies' prayer meeting, you'll know that Sister Sheila led the ladies around the church in an old-fashioned sing-song march, singing a song about being complete in Him. And I thought that was quite interesting, knowing what I was going to preach this morning. So I believe we're in the mind of the Lord. Or we're both off track, Sister Sheila, one or the other. Amen. But Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says that, And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, the word perfect and its similar words like perfecting appear more than the word complete does in the Scripture, but the meanings are almost interchangeable. They're very, very similar meanings in a scriptural sense. And one of the things that I find really uh, significant about these words is that the Scripture uses them talking about us in two different ways. The first one is that it speaks about us as already being complete or perfect. That's what it says. We just read, you are complete in Him. It's, it's already an established thing. But it also speaks about us as continuing to be perfected or still in a process of being, of being perfected. I'll give you a couple of Scripture examples for the sake of time. We'll just have them on the wall. But 2 Corinthians 7 and 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So that speaks of an ongoing process. Ephesians 4 and 11 and 12, referring to what we know as the fivefold ministry, says, And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. These two verses show us that this perfecting is ongoing. And yet the Scripture also talks about us being perfect and being complete in Him. The two are there together. So how can we be perfect and yet still being perfected at the same time? Those seem to be contradictory, but they're not. The simple example of how to understand this that many of you are familiar with is to use that example of either a healthy newborn baby or a tiny piece of fruit. They're perfect. They're complete. But they're not yet finished. So there's nothing lacking, but there's a process that is still taking place. A baby does not stay as an infant. But as a newborn, a healthy newborn child is perfect. It's complete. But there is a process that it begins. And a banana doesn't stay as a little tiny green hard thing. There's a process. Does it lack anything? No. Not at that stage, it doesn't. But as time goes by, that perfect little baby green banana will be perfected as a larger, ripe yellow banana. Same, very, I know this is very technical, very, very scientific. 
I'm using a lot of big words like banana at the moment. But this is an easy way to understand how you can be perfect and still being perfected. They're not contradictory. They're about where we're at in a process. Amen. And that's how it is spiritually. When you are born again, you have new life. You are complete in Jesus and you are ready to meet the Lord. Now, do you still have flaws? Absolutely. You'll have them for the rest of your life. There's a prophecy for you. You can take that one to the bank. You will have flaws for the rest of your life. But when you are born again, you are complete in Him and ready for His return. Whether you're the little green banana or the slightly green banana or the ripened banana, we are complete in Him. Amen. But as we are born again and we become what the Scripture refers to as babes, being babies, it begins that process where we need to grow Learn to walk, learn to talk, just like we did in the natural. And it's this growing and changing that takes place within the tension between the two atoms. That's where this process takes place. Because growth, healthy spiritual growth, makes us more like the last atom, Jesus Christ. The absence of growth leaves us as prisoners to the first atom in our old human nature. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, say that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You Bible school students know that that word inspiration comes from a Greek word meaning God breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable or it's beneficial for us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. You'll notice that Scripture has, serves four purposes in those verse, that verse. Two we would think are positive, and two we would think are negative. But correction and reproof are necessary. They're positive as well. But verse 17 says that the man of God, that's, everybody says, that's, that's me, even you ladies, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, under all good works. Now, if we go across to John chapter, first John, sorry, the first epistle of John, chapter 2 and verse 5 this is what it says it says but whoso keepeth his word in other words whoever obeys the word of God in him verily or in him truly is the love of God perfected hereby know we that we are in him the same epistle but chapter 4 and verse 18 says this there is no fear in love but perfect love there's that word you're going to see again casts out fear because fear has torment he that feareth is not made perfect in love so without getting off track very easily onto another lesson god's word is the written expression of his love for mankind that's ultimately there's, there's history in there there's prophecy there's a whole lot of areas but as a total it is an expression of god's love for humanity because it reveals to us our need for redemption. It gives us the story of redemption and how we can become redeemed. And that is all a product of the love of God. And that love is only able to be completed or perfected in its purpose when we obey the Word of God. Not only that, as we obey it and it transforms us, as it changes our lives, that completing, perfecting process will cast out fear. As God's Word and His love work together in us, 
fear is addressed. Because as we reach that point where His work is growing us, His word is leading us to maturity, fear is not of God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have fear because we are flawed. But part of the maturing process is that as the love of God works in us through the word of God, it will cast out the fear of God and complete what His love, the fear of God, cast out fear, negative fear, that shouldn't be in us as we allow His Word to operate in us. Amen. Everybody still with me? Okay. The Apostle Paul spoke, possibly a man that many hold in high regard as one of the greatest preachers, leaders, Christians throughout history. He still spoke about reaching for that perfection. He understood that although he he was the one that wrote, and you are complete in Him, but he also understood he was still in the process. Because he said in Philippians 3 and 12, he said, he said, I haven't already attained. I haven't got there yet. He said, I'm not already perfect. He said, but I follow after. He said, that I may apprehend, that I may get a hold of that which I am apprehended of by Christ Jesus. He wanted, see, he acknowledged that the Lord was perfect. And that was who he was pursuing. That was he was going after. He said, I haven't got a hold of it yet. He's got a hold of me. And I'm trying to get a hold of him as much as I can. Amen. And so, when we love the Lord with all of our heart, we want to please Him. We want to be like Him. Amen. When we love the Lord, that's what should be generated within us. We want to change. We want to be perfected in Him. Now, none of us think we're perfect. He says you're complete in Him. But there is still that ongoing perfection, and that ought to be our heart's desire. So how does this happen? How is it that we become perfected or completed in an ongoing sense in Him? You see, after we've been born again of water and spirit, we begin to learn the Word of God and we begin to apply it to our lives. We learn about sin. We learn about things we shouldn't do anymore. How many of you can testify that when you first got born again, there was a whole lot of stuff you were doing that the Bible, you had no idea the Bible said maybe you shouldn't do those things. We all can. You know, I, I tell a story of somebody who got baptized in Jesus' name or got the Holy Ghost, I can't remember which it was, and in their exuberant expression, they used expletives to talk about how awesome that experience just was. They didn't know they probably shouldn't have done that, but they said it was blankety-blank awesome. I'm sure a little bit later on, they're probably embarrassed about that. But they didn't know any better. And when you're born again, this, I mean, so... We can't assume that people in our society today know who David and Goliath were anymore. We can't assume they know the story of Noah. We, we, that people come in now with absolutely no knowledge of God's word whatsoever, and when they respond to the gospel and they obey the gospel and get born again, there's a whole new world opens up to them. And as we grow, we learn about righteous living and we learn about how to worship God. We, we learn about faithfulness. We, we learn about all different, we learn about giving got really quiet when I said that. We learn about giving. It's all part of living for the Lord. They're all things that we learn and our understanding grows in. Amen. But much, and this is where it gets a little bit close to the bone, but much of what God wants to do in us in that perfecting process, there's a lot of the, the stuff to do with righteous living, but a lot of the, the change that He wants to bring about is at the level of our character. It's at the who we are, not just the what we do. In fact, I would suggest scripturally that the who we are matters to God more than the what we do. 
Because when he changes the what we, the who we are, the what we do tends to just fall into line. Amen. And again, this is where the tension between the two atoms gets very real. The first atom likes the blessings of God on his life. You know, when you first responded to the gospel, when somebody told you that, that you needed to be saved from your sin, that you could be filled with the Holy Ghost and have the power of the Spirit of God living inside of you, your first thought had nothing. You weren't thinking, I'm going to be a missionary and help others and serve people. Yours was like, I want some of that. It's about what I want. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, not, that's a good thing to want the goodness of God. But that first Adam likes the blessings of God on his life, but not the change. The first Adam likes the miracles, but it's not interested in the sacrifice. The first Adam loves for God to provide for them, but he wants to keep his old heart and mind the way they were. The first Adam likes others to love him, but maybe not so keen on loving others. The first Adam justifies his actions as a response to the actions of others. The last Adam measures his actions according to the will of the Father. There's the tension between the two atoms. That's where we live right now, right smack bang in the middle. Amen. First John chapter 4 and verse 12 gives us a little insight into what is a significant part of that perfecting process. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through to 9. Let's turn there. Let's read that together. I know I'm moving a little bit quickly. Sunset's a long way off. And just in case you're wondering why you're turning to that scripture, I don't preach a message like this from having, I'm, I've, I feel very much like the Apostle Paul times a million not yet attained. When I prepare a message like this, I spend more time asking the Lord to help me than I do writing notes. Because I know where I'm at in this perfection process. If it was, if it was a timeline, I'm at the first notch after the starting point. That's where I'm at. And I'm not even sure sometimes there's much of a gap. So let me be transparent in that regard. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, this great apostle Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. It's basically, in more easy English, we would say, So I don't get thinking that I'm the next one to Jesus because of all the great things I've experienced. He said, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, or three times. Three times I prayed and said, God, get rid of it. It's killing me. It's driving me nuts. I've had enough of it. Take it away. Three times. This great man who could pray and the dead were raised. Prayed this, and the Lord said, No. Nope. Verse 9, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul has a thorn in the flesh. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what that was. What it was is not the issue. But the issue is that it was bugging him 
at the level of the first Adam. It was the thorn in his flesh. It was bugging him at the level of his natural man. And he said, God, I don't like it. I don't ever prayed that before. Ever said, Lord, this situation? Let's get, let's get someone walks past me with a box of Maltesers. I mean, seriously. And we're talking about a thorn in the flesh. <laughs> nice distraction, Brother Fister. <laughs> and might as well close in prayer. No. <laughs> but we've often said, the Lord, this situation, it's killing me. And if we're honest, we might have even said, Lord, this person is killing me. Hopefully you haven't asked the Lord to wipe somebody out. You may have asked the Lord to move them on to a more pleasant congregation somewhere else. But the point is that it was affecting Paul at the level of his first Adam in his humanity. And God said, I'm not going to take it away because by my grace, I'm demonstrating in you the power of the last Adam. He said, that's bothering you in the first Adam, but it's giving me an opportunity to reveal the power of the second Adam. And that's why he said, I'm leaving that there so that you can have access to that. He said, I'm not dealing with it because it's through that weakness that you're in this perfection process, which gives me an avenue to reveal the power of that quickening spirit. Amen. I preached a couple of weeks ago about harden not your hearts. And as a part of that lesson... We observed from the scripture that if I am aware that a brother is upset with me or that I am upset with a brother, the responsibility for forgiveness and making that right, or the word the scripture uses is reconciliation, that responsibility is mine. It's my responsibility. Whichever one of those situations I find myself in, that responsibility belongs to me. Amen. You see, the word of God contains instructions for all of our different human relationships talks about husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, children to parents, employers to employees, employees to employers, citizens to governments, governments to citizens, brethren to brethren, Christians to sinners, saints to leadership in the church. It's all covered. The, the Lord covers it all so we can't find a loophole. And in every one of those relationships, the instruction or the obligation that is given is placed upon me as the individual now I, I'm in a lot of those roles I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a brother I'm a pastor, I'm a saint etc and the instruction is always Simon do this Simon you don't do that it never says anywhere in the scripture let's, let's use the husband and wife example try to stay out of trouble here but it never says Simon love your wife as you love yourself it does say that but it doesn't go on and say as long as she does what she's supposed to do and you feel that her conduct is acceptable. There are no conditions given. It simply says, husbands, love your wives as you love yourself. That's it. That instruction is given to husbands. It's not given with three paragraphs and a few sub-clauses as long as she does this, that, as long as she doesn't burn my dinner and blah, blah, blah. No, no, it just says, husbands, this is what you have to do. Regardless of what she does the same works in reverse the scripture says wives reverence your husbands again it doesn't say as long as they meet your 17 pre-required conditions so the I think some people are disappointed there's only 17 but 
the instruction is always to me. As a husband, my, what God asks of me is to do what I'm supposed to do as a husband. As a brother in Christ, the instruction is do what I'm, as a father of children, do what I'm supposed to do as a father. It's not based upon what they do to justify my actions. Amen. You see, the thinking of the world, which comes from the first Adam, declares this. My conduct and my misbehavior is not my fault because somebody else caused me to do it. And because they failed in their responsibility, I am therefore excused for acting out. That's where we're living right now. But that's the first Adam. What did the, the first Adam do? What happened here? That woman you gave me? It's not my fault, God. It's not my fault. You gave it. I didn't ask for her. I went to sleep one night and I woke up and I was married. It's not my fault. That's the first Adam. The first Adam is, I'm not responsible. I have excuses. I can justify my actions by the actions of somebody else. But the scriptural principle, you won't find that in scriptural. The focus of every relationship is on what God expects from me. Not from me because of others. But the first Adam says, well, I didn't do that because they did this. And I didn't do that because they didn't do this. And therefore, and it's like this big old crazy spider web. But our love for God, and if you are a note taker, this is worth writing down. Our love for God is tested by our obedience to his commandments, which is demonstrated in our relationship with others. That is the way our love for God is tested. He's never going to let you down. Now, you may get upset at him, but that's probably more your problem than his. He is flawless, holy, without sin. If he says something's right, it's right. He can't do anything wrong. It is impossible. And so we love him, and that love is tested by how we interact with others. Now, let me be very clear. Am I saying that when my brother offends me, that he can do whatever he likes and I just have to put up with it? No, that's not biblical either. Because if I offend you, if I offend you, God, then I have not done what God expects of me. Because again, that's my behavior. And he requires me to repent and to be reconciled. Again, the instruction of Scripture is always mine. Whether I'm the offender or the offendee, the responsibility is, what will you do? That's why, as we, we read a couple of weeks ago, and we learned that lesson, it's important that we go one to another. That's how things get reconciled. Because so often things happen in ignorance. And when it happens in ignorance and the other party doesn't know and we don't respond scripturally, we allow that situation. Remember the part about strife and trouble? We allow the strife and trouble to fester. And God says, what are you doing about it? You see, when you read the book of Job, a lot of that struggle is Job trying to understand what happened to him. Because in Job's sight, he didn't do anything to deserve it. And eventually it came to a point where he had to throw his hands up, surrender to God, and say, you're God. I don't have the right to question you. I don't have the right to say, why me? I just need to worship you. Amen. So we, that's why it's important that we focus on what does God require of me? You know, when you have kids, if you have more than one kid, they'll always justify their actions by the brother or the sister or the multiple brothers or multiple sisters. 
did you do this? Yeah, I did, but they did that. You know, and you, you, you break up a fight or whatever, and it's like, you know, well, he threw a shoe at me. Well, he, didn't, he bit me. And, and it's kind of like, as, it's as if, you know, if I can say that he did more bad things than I did, I'll, I'll get out of it, and they'll be the one that gets punished. But the reality is we've both done the wrong thing, and we're accountable for our own actions, and we're accountable to God for our own responses. The first Adam... The first Adam does not want to forgive and does not want to grow. He wants self-pity and to feel sorry for himself. Pastor Jonathan Downs posted something the other day, passed from Canberra, that I thought was outstanding. It's just a simple thing. It said self-pity. It said if you let yourself believe that no one understands, the next step is to believe that no one can help you. And because of this, you refuse counsel, you reject instruction, and you abandon guidance. You isolate yourself. Amen. That's the first Adam. That's the first Adam in a nutshell. Amen. God, who is actually perfect in every sense, not the perfect that it talks about us being perfect, but he's really perfect in the sense that he's never done anything wrong and everything about him is right and holy. He looks at you and me and he says that we are complete in him. That's irrational sorry but that's irrational because i know who i am i can say but lord what about this that i'm I'm doing wrong what about this that i need to change how about this area where i've got to keep growing and keep changing but he looks at us through the power of the cross and the empty tomb and sees us as complete in him and we know that we're not flawless sorry let me say that again we know that we are flawless that's a false doctrine coming to you that's because of the Maltesers. We know that we are flaw- that we are not flaws. We, we're full of sin. We're full of flaws. I'll get it right eventually. But he sees us as complete. But he uses the imperfection around us to perfect us. Let me say that again. God uses the imperfection around us to perfect us, to reveal our imperfection which is a part of the perfecting process. And our love for him is demonstrated in how we or how I respond to imperfections. That's the word of God. When I offend somebody, it is a demonstration of the exact same thing. It's a demonstration of the fact that I am still in need of perfection. I'm still flawed. I haven't got it all right. I need to make... And God holds me accountable. You know, if somebody offends you, and you think, well, you know, why doesn't lightning strike them? They're accountable to God for that. And unless they address that, that will interfere with them being perfected in the Lord. And God holds them accountable. He doesn't hold me accountable to address your imperfections. He holds me accountable to address mine, as the saying. And He holds you accountable to address your own. So if my good friend over here offends me, God doesn't say it's your responsibility to fix him up. The, the first Adam says that. first Adam says, I'm going to let him know what and how and when. And then some. That's the first Adam. But what God wants in me, if I'm desiring to be like the second Adam, is that I would focus on how I'm handling that situation and let God worry about what's going on with him. Because God holds him accountable 
So you know, I use Brother Gavin as an example because in the some 40 years of knowing Brother Gavin, I don't remember any time he's ever offended me. Maybe that one time when he gave me a black eye, but that's a story for another time. That's a true story. You can ask about that afterwards. Kick me in the head playing basketball. But, um, but we are responsible for our own actions, not the actions of others. And that's one of the things when people talk to me and they say, well, this happened and that happened and someone did this and someone did that. One of the things I'll often say is we can't change the behavior of other people. We can only be responsible for ourselves. That's the second Adam. Amen. The first Adam says they shouldn't have done that. They need to be punished. Amen? The last Adam says, Father, forgive them. The first Adam says, what about what I want? The last Adam says, not my will, but thine be done. The first Adam says, they shouldn't speak to me like that. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. Generally speaking, people that give away a lot of pieces of their mind don't have a lot of pieces left. But the second Adam opened not his mouth. This is the tension between the two Adams. That's where we live. That's why it's not easy some days. That's why there's a struggle because there's one Adam saying, hey, I still want control. And there's another saying, if you cut that one off or you reject and deny that one, I'll demonstrate that quickening power, that quickening spirit in your life. And we all feel that tension like that tightly strung wire. But you know what's going to happen one day when that trumpet sounds? It's going to be like someone comes along and goes, snip, and that wire is just going to go, and we're going to be gone. We're just going to spring out of there and go to be with the Lord, be glorified and changed. Stand with me if you would this morning.